In the book of Esther, chapter number 8, verse number 1, let's read the entire chapter. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes... Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, you deserve a gold ribbon just for making it through that passage with me. That is a lot of Bible verses. I don't know why I didn't shorten that a little bit, but we made it through. And listen, all of the Word of God is good, and sometimes it comes in heavy doses like this. This message is going to be a lot more, I think, penetrating than the initial reading of the Scripture. What we're looking at today is one of the things that I've seen God throughout my own history, and I see it all over the Bible, that God delights in. 
God loves to bring reversals of fortune. You know that phrase? It means when things look like they're going one way and then through God's mighty working out of left field, when we don't know how he's going to do it, he does a 180 spin on circumstances, on people's destinies, pardon me, on their lives, and even sometimes on the ways of the enemies when the wicked look like they're prospering. This was an terribly, a terribly intense time period for the Hebrew people. They heard the clock ticking or the calendar flipping. In nine months, they knew already that the entire nation had the legal right to exterminate them for one reason, and that was because they were born Jewish. Anti-Semitism, which I'm not going to really deal with a whole lot tonight because we've dealt with it so much in this series. Anti-Semitism is always sourced in the wicked heart of Satan. No matter whether the people who are functioning as the anti-Semites, and that's just a phrase that means people that are antagonistic towards the Jews, no matter if they are aware of it or not, I'm going to tell you, anti-Semitism is sourced in hell. And here it was, Haman, though he was dead, had already gotten the ball rolling, and the law was in the land that the Jews were going to die. Now here's the question that I want to address tonight. When we look at this passage of Scripture, God does something amazing. He lets the Hebrew people know that they're going to have to fight for their lives. To the extent, we're not just talking about a war of words, we're talking about a physical war unto the death. They knew death was coming their way, and the only way they were going to be able to stop death is with death when the evil people came. Now, we live in a day, and let me tell you what most people in our culture expect of Christians, because A, they're biblically ignorant, our culture is biblically ignorant, and also the church is becoming biblically ignorant because we are far more informed by our culture than we are by our Bibles. And because of this, this is what a lot of people believe Christians are called to do by Jesus. We are called, in their opinion, to be doormats, that we can never fight back, we can never defend ourselves, that Christianity in a lot of people's minds is synonymous with pacifism that we have to be pacifists, that we can't fight for anything, and that the call of God on our lives is to pass out roses when people are coming at us with guns. And that is not the teaching of Scripture. It all basically proceeds from one teaching that Jesus gave when he said, if somebody smites you on your one cheek, what are we supposed to do? Turn the other cheek. And people take that and they amplify it to the extent where they believe that we are not allowed to defend ourselves when we are attacked, we are not allowed to defend our property, to defend our home, or defend our families. And that's not what Jesus was talking about. When Jesus gave that statement, he is giving it in the context of first century Jewish culture in the Roman Empire. And basically what it boils down to is this. The, to slap somebody on the cheek was the greatest visible insult that you could do to anybody. It wasn't so much of picking a fist fight that he was talking about. He was talking about how to respond when your dignity has been reproached by somebody in public. And what Jesus was teaching in that passage and in other places, he was teaching us, don't fight for your own reputation. Don't make yourself the center of your focus in defending yourself and making sure that everybody treats you with the respect and dignity that you believe. He's not teaching there that we cannot defend ourselves. He, he nowhere is teaching in the Bible that we are supposed to just lay down and enter into, as Christians, a perpetual state of victimhood. Unfortunately, because people don't know the rest of what Jesus taught, nor the fact that in the Bible, you're going to see from the very early chapters in the book of Exodus that God oftentimes called his people to warfare. And the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament are the same being. 
They have the same nature, the same heart, and the same mind. And so when we're looking at Esther chapter number 8, it's undeniable. God is telling his people that they are freed up to fight back. If you and I are going to be able to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me tell you what is going to happen. This is not even prophetic. This is just rightly dividing the word of truth. At the end of the age, Christians will die for their faith all across the planet. That literally martyrdom is going to take place during the tribulation and people are going to give their lives because they refuse to take the mark of the beast and they refuse to announce Jesus Christ. They're pictured all throughout the book of Revelation. Some will be beheaded. Some will be crucified. But the reality is there is coming a day on planet Earth where the months and the years are going to be filled with physical violent attacks upon Christians. Before it comes to that climax, there's going to be lesser degrees of violence against Christians. The reality is, is that some people believe that all we're supposed to do is just lay down and be trampled upon. And I want to tell you, we need to think a little bit more clearly, and I think we'll get some help from this message tonight. So let's go back into the chapter number eight of the book of Esther and let's look at a couple of things. First of all, let's rejoice for a little bit longer with the hero of the story whose name is Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai serve as a tandem hero in this awesome book of the Bible and we're going to see a full reversal of fortune for Mordecai. Go back up into verses one and two and it says this, on that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther, watch this, the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Remember, Mordecai was Esther's older cousin, and he basically raised her when her parents died. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. Now watch this. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So if you weren't here for last week's message, you're at a slight disadvantage because the amazing thing that was going on is um, excuse me, Haman was getting so filled with himself, so bloated and so full of ego. And over a two-day period, he was feeling like the most powered, most wonderful man in all of the empire. And God brought him down several notches until ultimately he was killed. But in the same uh, situation, when, when Haman was uh, executed, all of his property becomes property of the king. All of his territory, all of his lands, which he had been boasting about, all of the riches that he owned. That he, remember, he was bragging to his wife and his friends. They're sitting down in Haman's house, and Haman's going in there and just rehearsing what an awesome human being that he is. And so all of his luxury, all of his uh, assets, all of his home, everything he had, when he died, it was then given. It became property of the empire, property of the king. And what does the king do with it? He says, Esther... You are now going to receive everything that once belonged to Haman. By the way, that would include his household servants. It would have included any of his family that was there. It would have included, of course, his home, his land, everything. Esther receives it from the king. What does Esther immediately do? She says, Mordecai, I want you to run it all. I want that house to be your house. I want you to run his servants. I want you to run his land. So why is this interesting? Because this was the guy that wanted to kill Mordecai. This was the guy that had put a bullseye on Mordecai. This is the guy that hated Mordecai. And all Mordecai did was honor the Lord and wait on the Lord and refuse to bow down to wicked Haman. And all these threats were coming against Mordecai. His life was on the line. And in a matter of 72 hours, God takes Mordecai from being a dude with a bounty on his head from Haman and he totally reverses it. Now Haman's dead in the grave and Mordecai's eaten in his kitchen that night. 
Friends, let me just, I know you've heard this, but I want you to hear it again. I want you to get this. God knows when and how to vindicate you. He knows what your enemy is all about. He knows what opposes you. He is actually working right now to bring both himself glory and to bring good. Romans 8, 28 says he's working all things together for your good. And he knows how to glorify himself. The issue with us is we are not really fond of waiting on God's timing, right? Because you remember, Mordecai was the forgotten one. He was the one that saved the king and got ignored and forgotten for probably years. And all of that waiting and all of that temptation to say, nobody cares about me. Nobody appreciates me. The Lord's not got my back. I'm doing everything right. I'm getting persecuted. And, you know, that's potential. It, It doesn't say that he actually did that, but that could happen because it happens to a lot of us. And now here we are a short time later, and Mordecai is going home to Haman's house that night. And he's in that same dining room where just the day before, Haman's sitting there talking about, I'm going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill that guy. I can't stand that guy. I hate that guy. And now Haman is dead, and Mordecai is running the show. Um, I just add that in there because I don't want you to forget that just because you don't see God moving doesn't mean that he's not moving. God does not owe us an explanation ahead of time. And a lot of us, listen, sometimes we, 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 we feel like either pouting or punting or, you know, we just don't know what God's doing. And friends, that's why he said, hey, you're justified. That means you are the just. And I have already decreed that the just shall live by, say it, faith. And the more details we demand ahead of time, the less faith we're actually living by. And so I'm going to go ahead and and, and tell you this because you're big boys and girls. Here we go. Um, God likes to leave you in the dark sometimes because it's typically in the dark where people of faith will press in more closely to him. And he loves having you and I close to him. And he just knows because he's a good daddy. He's a good papa. He knows if he tells us everything and gives us everything and, and operates as the microwave father where you press a button, you get what you want, you walk away. He knows that if he operates with us like that, that we have a tendency to drift on him. Um, I have found myself more than once, and I, I don't pray it as much as I used to. Maybe I should pray it now more than ever. But I ask the Lord, I say, Lord, do whatever it takes to not let me drift from you. And I'm going to tell you, from about 2006 to about 2013, I must have been in danger of really drifting because he was doing everything to orchestrate circumstances that didn't let me get six inches away from him because out there was big trouble. Mordecai, he's now had this full reversal of fortune. Uh, Let me give you some statements from Jesus that kind of give you a New Testament framework for this Old Testament passage. I think it'll be up on the screen. In Matthew chapter 19, this is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now watch this. And everyone, say everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life many who are first will be last. Haman was first, Haman ended up being last, and the last will be first. Mordecai was last, and here he is getting promoted to first. This is a promise. I I want you to know this applies to us. Yes, the disciples will be on the 12 thrones. You don't get a throne, so don't even aim for that. That's not for you, that's not for me. But I love the fact that Jesus said this, that everybody who counts the cost and pays the cost 
Everybody that endures loss, everybody that has to let things go because of, of, of persecution or resistance or simply because you've got kingdom priorities, therefore you can't chase the culture's priorities, so you're going to lose some things in the process. Jesus says everybody that does that for my name's sake is going to receive in the world to come, in the new world, a hundredfold. I want you to remember that. When we give our time, our money, our energy, our effort, when we proactively give and release into the kingdom, you're not losing a thing. We, we have to really understand that we are literally investing it. If you invest money down here on earth, I don't have any problems with that whatsoever. You're doing it because you are anticipating a return on your investment, but it's not guaranteed down here. When we invest in the kingdom, it is a guaranteed return. You know why? Because the one who's running your fund is the sovereign son of God. And he said, there is going to be a blessing a hundredfold on you. So it's not only what we proactively uh, invest in the kingdom, it's what sometimes we lose. Sometimes because of our kingdom commitments, we're going to be misunderstood by even people in our family. He's mentioned that here. Sometimes we're going to have to give up some of the beautiful things of this life, leaving houses. I think of my missionary friends. I, I think of a couple all the time. They were really big in the uh, late 80s, early 90s in D.C. They were making seven figures, each of them a husband and wife. They got radically saved, radically saved. They immediately quit their jobs, took all of the money they had made, moved to the Philippines, set up what is now probably three schools, probably 50 to 60 churches, and hospitals and orphanages. They took everything here that so many people are scrambling for. They had it, but when they got saved, they realized, let's invest it with a return that's going to go on forever. See, friends, those are the kind of things that we need to remember. The first are going to be last in the kingdom. And those that we might not be overly impressed with down here, those, the, those Christians, those very simple, faithful, steadfast Christians who don't make the headlines, who will never be on TMZ, who are not going to make entertainment tonight, if that's still on TV. I don't, I don't really know if those programs are on, but you know what I'm saying. The people that aren't, ooh, applauded and admired, Jesus says there's a reversal coming, just like I did for Mordecai. If you're still addicted to having your cake and eating it too and eating it now, um, I can promise you something. The Lord's going to be working to mature you because we are not about getting everything now. We wait on the Lord and his timing and there will be a reversal. So let's go a little bit further. We've got Mordecai now living high on the hog. God has blessed him. He has endured. He has waited on the Lord. And so now Mordecai is going home to Haman's house. Esther has now finally been able to reveal her identity to the king. So let's look at this. In verse number three, uh, three through eight, we're still going to see something. There's still an abiding danger for all of the Jews that are in the empire. It hasn't gone away. Why? Verse three, the threat had not been removed. Look at what it says there. Esther spoke again to the king. Now watch this. She fell at his feet. She wept and she pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jew. So in the midst of this series of miraculous events that have now preserved Esther and Mordecai, we got to remember that that previously signed death decree is still in full effect. So the people of Persia had been legally given the right to murder the Jews all throughout the kingdom. And they were living everywhere, probably over a million of them in the kingdom. And that included not just the men, 
but the men, the women, the children, and the infants. If you're Jewish, your neighbors had the right to kill you. There was absolutely nothing that the Jews could do. Now, what's interesting is Mordecai and Esther, because of Mordecai's favor that he's received from the king, and because Esther's married to the king, they're probably safe and sound. I don't think anything's going to happen to them. They've disclosed their identity as Hebrews. Um, Esther is going to reveal here in a second that Mordecai is her older cousin. He raised her when she was an orphan. And Mordecai also happened to save the king's life. So it is highly likely that although all of the Jews in the land are going to be exterminated, Mordecai and Esther are safe and sound. Now I'm just going to ask a question, then we're going to follow the text here. Um, it paints a picture of something that's within our heart. There is something in our hearts that loves to preserve self. There, it's in all of us. I'm not indicting us. I'm not even accusing. I'm just stating a fact. There's something in the human heart. It is an instinct in the natural that we want to preserve ourselves, protect ourselves, provide for ourselves. Ultimately, and if we're independent of the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll actually live our whole lives for ourselves. And so when I see this, I see this tension. I see two godly people Mordecai and Esther, who are safe and sound. They're preserved in the palace, so to speak. And yet all of their kinsmen, all of the seed of Abraham, to which they belong also, have this decree of death hanging over them. So the story has an intriguing plot moment here. Will they or won't they? Will they just stay safe in the castle because they're taken care of? Will, will they just hunker down and assimilate into the culture and, and let the sovereign God do whatever he wants to do with all the other Jews? Or will they go to fight for their people? Well, you've already seen Esther comes in in verse 3. She falls at the feet of the king. She's weeping and pleading. Remember the first time she came in for the king and she was, uh, came into the king, her husband, and she was pleading for her life? There were no tears. There was no emotion. She was very calm, cool, and collected. But her passion for her people her compassion for her people, her burden, the urgency of the situation, the realization that if, if the king doesn't do something, these people are going to be murdered. And so she falls down on her feet. She's breaking every royal protocol of what you can and cannot do in the presence of a Persian king. And she's just laying it all out there. She's completely putting her life once again on the line. And she's saying to the king, please reverse the law. Please take that law off the book. Please send out messengers that say that the decree is null and void. We'll go down into verse 4 and 6. And we're going to see it wasn't enough for them, her or Mordecai. She's doing the talking here. But it wasn't enough for them to be personally secure. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, that's the invitation for her to come in, she rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleases the king, if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of whatever, Hamadatha, Jim Bob, Billy, whatever you want to call it, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. And watch this. Listen to our heart here. Listen to the compassion, the burden. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? This is the first time in a long time 
that Esther's been able to publicly connect and identify with her people, the Jews. And I love the fact that it seems to be coming out in this stream of, of just courage and, and, and burden, all kind of an admixture together. Um, let me give you something here. And ladies, I want you to be real wise and careful with what I'm about to say, okay? We, we, we mentioned this earlier in the series about one of the things that I believe that God has gifted women with is the uh, incredible ability to influence. And I mentioned, and this came really through wisdom that my wife gave me on this subject, I mentioned that most women who are not operating under the control of the Holy Spirit will use that ability to influence men and they'll use it for manipulation, They'll use it to get what they want out of a man. But in Esther's testimony, she was always using the king's attraction and love for her to do something big for the kingdom or for other people. Look at what she says here, and it's not real clear in the English, but in verse number six, she's saying, if I found favor in your sight, if it pleases you, and then she says this, and if I'm pleasing in your eyes, let me just cut to the chase. You know what she's saying? She was saying, and if you still think I look good, she is literally in that moment saying, King, you know I got what you like. That's what she's saying. I'm not going to, listen, we're grownups in here. She is saying, if you still like me the way I know that you like me, she's throwing everything in. She, and by the way, she's his wife, so she can say that, okay? Don't, please don't write me prude emails, you know. I'm just telling you, she's using every tool in the box. Why? She's trying to save her people. She's not trying to get some new earrings, She's not trying to get, you know, uh, an upgrade on her, her royal chariot. She is trying to save her people, and it's all just coming out. And by the way, it works. She says, I can't bear to see the destruction that's coming to my people, my kindred. I love the fact that all of her privilege, all of her wealth, she's the most powerful woman in the entire empire, and she never forgot who she was. She never lost that. I believe, personally speaking, feel free to disagree with me. This is my opinion. Uh, I believe more people can survive challenge and difficulty than they can privilege and opulence. I think more people have fallen on the altar of plenty than those that have fallen on that altar of scarcity. There's something that happens to the human heart when abundance comes upon that life. And most people presume that we would be better off with abundance. You really don't know. There are simply, one of the, one of the most gracious things, and this goes completely, flies in the face of much of the prosperity gospel because the prosperity gospel is, in my opinion, it's too amplified. It takes some truths of scripture and makes it into a, a law of the kingdom. And I don't think we're allowed to do that when it comes to prosperity. There are clearly people that God can entrust with wealth and riches and prosperity. But some people will never have it, and the reason why is not because they're doing anything wrong, and it's not because God is not good. It's because God knows if he gives them that, that they will go chasing that the rest of their lives, and they'll abandon him. And so when we're looking at this, Esther is one of those rare people that can be entrusted with position, privilege, and power, and she's still connecting with those that have been disenfranchised, those that have no privilege whatsoever, those who are being oppressed and targeted by their culture. I, I want to remind us of this before moving on to the next point. We've got to get this. Now, I can say this so much easier now that the vote is over, but so many of us in the church only see one half of God's throne. We say his throne is righteous, and it is. 
It's holy and righteous, and Christians should be holy and righteous, and holiness and righteousness should proceed from our lives in every area. But that same throne is, throne is also a throne of justice. And so we can't hammer home morality and righteousness while turning a deaf ear to justice. And there is injustice in the land. And that's part of our American history. And one of the most frustrating things, I believe, by people, especially African Americans, is when predominantly white churches want to pound the pulpit on moral issues and never say a word about justice. And it's got to come to a place where we recognize these two things are not in competition with each other. They're actually proceeding from the same divine being, our heavenly father, the God, of our father, God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, if we are truly going to press in for revival, yes, righteousness, morality, ethics, all of that. But revival won't come in the absence of us remaining committed to a horizontal justice between man and man. And that's what Esther was doing. Esther was speaking out and risking it so that the king might see the need for justice to be enacted. Now, what has she asked him to do here? She's asking him to revoke the law, and what Esther is about to find out is that there's actually a law within the law in the land of the Persians. This is a little-known thing to Esther, maybe not known at all, but once a Persian king had enacted a law, there was a higher law that said he can never reverse that law. So in other words, he's made a law, he signed it ignorantly and blindly, but he signed it, that the Jews are going to die in the last month of the calendar year. And Esther's saying, just do away with the law. Now, so go down to verse 7 and 8 with me. The king's about to say no, but he is going to offer a sliver of hope here. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Verse number 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Let me tell you what's going on here. The king's not a godly man. We already d determined. I've said it probably half the messages. He liked to get drunk and he liked women. That was the king. He liked money, women, and alcohol. That's his whole testimony. Every now and then, he shows a little bit of a, a slight benevolent piece to his heart, but for the most part, he's a pretty de depraved kind of guy. And what he's saying here is, is Esther is pleading, crying, weeping. She's saying, please, reverse the law, reverse the law. And he looks at her and he says this, and it's a little stern. He says to her, I've already given you Haman's house, and we've already killed him because of what he was going to do to your people. And then he adds this. He says, and he's speaking to her and Mordecai, he says, but why don't you take the ring I just gave you, you write out whatever law you want to that might benefit the Jews, seal it with my ring, which is like the official seal of the kingdom, seal it with my ring, and I will send the, the messengers out with that law. So here's what the king's saying. It's almost a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing. He's saying, I can't really do what you're asking me, but let me tell you what I can do. I can give you Mordecai, He's basically made Mordecai the prime minister. He's the chief of staff, whatever you want to call it. He says, Mordecai, I've given you that ring that used to belong to Haman. Isn't that amazing? Don't forget that. I mean, that Haman walked around. He's showing everybody the king's ring. And king took it off his finger right before he killed him. And he gives it now to Mordecai. Now, Mordecai's got the king's ring. 
And he's saying to Mordecai, why don't you get with my official press secretary and we will coordinate something here and we'll get the legislative branch in on this and we will craft whatever law, you take care of it. In the Hebrew language, the, the, the sentence begins with an emphatic you. He's saying, you do it. You do it. I want you to hear me. It's a picture sometimes of how we want God to fix stuff for us. How many of you like it when God fixes your stuff for you? Anybody besides me? I love it. I mean, I can't tell you. I'm like, Lord, just fix this thing. Fix this person. Fix this situation. Fix this. I mean, I, I've treated him like the glorified Tim, the tool man Taylor for so many years saying, fix things, fix things, fix things. Most of the time God says, no, what I'm going to do is give you the wisdom and the courage to fix it yourself. He, he's always going to accompany us. But that's what the king is saying to Mordecai and to Esther. Esther's saying, fix this, king. And he says, I'm not going to fix it. I'm going to let you fix it. And he offers a sliver of hope. This is what I'm trying to get through to us tonight. It's not always a physical battle that God's telling you you're going to fight. Sometimes it is a, an enduring test of circumstances. Sometimes it's a clash of philosophies, ideologies, values. Sometimes it's a relationship that has gotten so sideways that you are just about five seconds from walking away, but the Holy Spirit won't let you. And so you're just having to be there, and you're just like, Lord, fix this person. Just a quick sidebar. Have you ever prayed at length for God to fix somebody, and he, instead of fixing them, he ends up fixing you? Yeah? <laughs> Good. I'm glad you said yeah there, because I've got like 15 people that's happened to me with. I was like, Lord, fix her, fix him, fix him, fix him. And the Lord just leaves them alone and starts working on me. And interestingly enough, when he fixes us, we're not really worried about him fixing them anymore. It's just the way that works. So the king is saying to her, um, I, I can't undo the law. By the way, in Daniel chapter 6, verse number 8, verse number 12, and verse number 15, it's explicitly stated there that the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be reversed. And so that principle governs the whole kingdom. But it's amazing that although the system wasn't in favor of Esther and Mordecai, the king had a way for her to be able to escape. He, he had a way for her to do what she needed to do and for Mordecai to do what he needed to do. Why am I telling you all of this? Because, friends, we're, we're just living in a day where I'm, I'm, I'm going to be plain. I don't want to be ugly, but I do want to be plain spoken here. A lot of people just give up when God doesn't fix the problem like that. We are so conditioned by immediate results in our culture. I mean, everything's instant. How many of you are old enough to remember a dial-up modem on the computer? I once grew a beard trying to access a website. Just, it just goes on and on. You know, by the time I got done, I got you know, six inches of hair hanging on my face because it took a month. And, and now, man, we, we can get information, and if that thing takes 20 seconds to load a page, we're twitching, man. We're like, what's going on over here? Why? We're conditioned to instant results in every facet of life. And what's happened is in the church now, we want to pop in a 20-second prayer and get a 10-year answer. That's just not the way it works. And so we have got to, and I'm, I'm going to tell you this, maybe this is a little bit of a prophetic edge, but I do believe that one of the major uh, coming events in our culture is going to involve at some point cataclysmic events that are going to completely, completely take away all technology and all ability, and we're literally going to be returned to a primitive-like status 
across the globe. Have you ever wondered in the book of Revelation when the army is coming to attack Jerusalem, the Bible's speaking about them coming on horses? With the blood up to the horses. You ever wonder, what are they doing on horses? Because the tanks and all the armaments are run by computers. They're not going to work in that day. See, friends, we're coming to a place where all of the perks and all of the instant access to anything we want in the culture is going to be completely, completely taken away from us. And we are so dependent on getting what we want when we want it that we no longer know how to endure and persevere and tarry and wait on the Lord. And so what I'm calling you to do now, I am going to pass to you for a moment here. I'm telling you right now, crucify the impatience in your soul. I'm having to do that constantly crucify the on-demand expectation that we get what we want when we want it it is of the devil if it's not of the devil it's of the flesh it's those that wait upon the lord that renew their strength and we've we've lost that art of waiting upon the lord everybody's in a hurry i'm preaching to me and my wife's sitting on the front row and she's like i hope you know what you're talking about because that is you it is that's me it is. I, I'm, I'm telling you that. I, that's why I'm so aware of the battle. I'm like, Lord, what is it within us that wants instant return? Um, what the king is saying here is he's saying to, uh, you know, to Esther and Mordecai, you're going to have to work for some of this. Grace does not nullify works. It just properly it gives you the proper perspective on works. Paul said this, the grace of God that was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all. Paul said, I've got mega grace on my life, and it's resulted in me mega laboring. And so let's go a little bit further in this so I can actually finish this message tonight. So here's the way of escape. Go down into verse, um, verse number nine. Here's the way of escape from the Lord, and we'll finish up in these next couple of verses. Now, I love this. A Gentile king helps a Jewish population. Watch this. The king himself couldn't do everything, but watch this. The king's scribes were summoned. Who do you think summoned the scribes? The king did. They were summoned at that time in the third month. Remember, the execution date is in the 12th month, so this is nine months before D-Day. Um, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. And it was given to all the officials, the satraps, the governors, the officials of the provinces, all 127 of them. Now, notice it was written in... In, the, in each province in its own script, each people in their own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And Mordecai wrote in the name of King Hasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses and so on and so on. Um, I just think it's awesome that the proverb once again comes true that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it whatever way he wants. Let me ask you something, because the king, at one point in the story, because he was kind of listening to, more, uh, to Haman, the king was the biggest problem in the entire empire for the Jewish people. Now he's making all of his resources available to save those people. You know what we, we forget sometimes? Is that when the bad guys look like they're winning, when it, when it just doesn't seem reasonable that there's any hope of any good coming because the shadow of the bad guy is looming over us or the circumstance or whatever it is that's opposing us can we just discipline ourselves to honor God by remembering that he doesn't need six months to change things all of this change happened in two and a half days 
it was just two and a half days earlier where this stuff was getting really thick with Mordecai about to die and Haman sitting there and throwing back beers with the king and laughing about Mordecai's death. And now Haman's dead, Mordecai's in the palace, and the king's getting his people together to write new law into effect. Not, he's not going to revoke the old law, but he's going to write a new law that's actually going to be used by God to deliver the Jewish people. Um, I, I think we need to remember that when Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, it wasn't some legalistic duty. Sometimes because we pray for our enemies, our enemies change. Sometimes when we're praying for our enemies, which is one of the hardest things we'll ever have to do as a Christian, the, the greatest thing that God to, could do to your enemy is kill him, not by physical death, but kill his enemy status by making him your brother or making her your sister, by saving them. By doing for them what he did for you and he brought grace to you and forgave you and washed you and made you new. But we have a hard time with that, don't we? It's like, yeah, I want people to get saved, but not her. We never say it, but our attitude reflects that sometimes. No, listen, one of the greatest things that could ever happen to the person that did you the dirtiest was for them, it would be for them to get radically saved. Because if they got radically saved and they have access to you, they're going to come in repentance to you, asking your forgiveness, and restoration can actually take place. I don't know that the king ever did this, but the whole, the whole point is that God allowed the main person that was the problem to become the main conduit, the main source for the solution a little bit later on. And so what was the actual um, task that was given? We'll go down to verse number 11. And let's just watch divine sovereignty partner with human responsibility. Here it is again. God's doing something, but it takes, it's going to require the people to do something. Verse 11 says that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather. That means they could literally form a platoon or a small army and defend their lives. They could destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. And just to make sure everybody knew that it was no holds barred, if children attacked them, sounds terrible, sounds barbaric, but if children attacked them to kill them, they had the right to defend themselves and kill those children attackers, women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus and so on and so on. And so I'm not going to read the rest of it, but so the king puts a law in effect that runs parallel to the earlier law. The earlier law was at the end of the year, in the 12th month, that anybody that wanted to could kill any Jew he, he, he or she wanted to. They could get their kids to go and kill the next door neighbor who happened to be a Jew. And now this other law has been brought in, and it's going to run parallel with the first law. And now the second law is that the king is saying, by virtue of my authority... On the same day, there's only one day in question, the, the decree to kill all the Jews was on one day on the calendar. And now the king says, on that same day, any Jew that wants to fight back can fight back at any level that he or she chooses. So, so what happened? Well, God just completely leveled the playing field. Whereas the Hebrews were at a terrible disadvantage, now through the pagan Gentile king, God is going to save the Jews. I, I like that, by the way, because... God sent a Jewish king to save us pagan Gentiles. In this chapter, he sends a Gentile king to save the Jews. I just, I love all the reversals in this. And so when, when this is happening, it's, it's just unbelievable. All of a sudden, these people that have been living under this cloud of doom are finding out that they have a chance to fight back. But notice this, the king couldn't do it for them. We have to recognize this. God has empowered us. God has authorized us. 
We have authority in the kingdom. We have greater authority than any demon, than any human opposition. We literally have greater power. And that's not just pie in the sky by and by. If you've got Jesus, you have authority and power that is elevated above the natural realm that you're living in. But so many of us just want God to send Gabriel down to fight our battles. He said, call Gabriel because this is how we fight our battles. Gabriel fights them for us. Gabriel takes care of business for us or an angel or or God himself. Sometimes God just says, no, you're actually going to go through this and you're going to learn how to do it with me instead of me just doing it for you. If right now you're in a battle that God isn't solving and handling for you, I'm going to tell you something. He's actually wanting to foster intimacy between you and him because he doesn't want to fight this one for you. He wants to fight this one alongside of you. He, He literally wants to walk you step by step, decision by decision challenge by challenge he wants to to, for you to literally look into his face so he can guide you with a pupil of his eye he he just wants that and and sometimes when he doesn't fix stuff for us it's because he's inviting us to learn how to do it with him instead of all of all the time us just saying god do it for me i don't want to fight just make it go away and friends our strength comes when we learn not to depend on our own selves not to depend on our resources but we actually have to learn how do i fight a battle alongside of god instead of just always hiding behind god now i know there are times where the lord goes before you and you don't have to do a thing and that's his battle to fight but that's not all the battles um go a little bit further in this y'all still with me okay so let's go down to the last verses so the decree goes out the people are told that they can fight back physically fight back look then the scene it's like a movie reel the scene cuts away to to mordecai check it out in verse 15 his appointed destiny intersects with his human history mordecai went out from the presence of the king check this out in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of susa that's the capital shouted and rejoiced the jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. It couldn't get more polar opposite in chapter 8 than when it was in chapter 5, 6, and 7. And God used the faithfulness of some very simple people. Think about what's happened. He made the orphan the queen. Mordecai, there was a chapter where early on where Mordecai was clothed in sackcloth with ashes on his head. Here he is in royal robes with a crown on his head. Grace, grace, grace. There was a time when they had to call a fast among the Jews. And by the time you get to the end of chapter number eight, they're calling a feast among the Jews why is all of this in our Bible because God is saying over our lives repeatedly through 
50 different examples in this book. I've only given you five. Probably 50 example. God is saying, do not assign permanent status to the trouble you're going through today. Don't enthrone your problems and dethrone your father. Don't look at your human enemy and make him Goliath-sized while you make the power and the presence of God, you know, pygmy-sized in your life. Don't do that. God is saying to us, listen, and this is part of him doing it alongside of us and through us. We, we, we have to, we have to, it sounds so trite, we have to believe. We have to trust. We have to break through our natural doubts that, that say, what if he doesn't come through? What, what if there aren't answers on the backside of this? What, what, if, what, what if what I'm asking doesn't happen? Well, listen to me. Sometimes what we're asking doesn't happen. Let's go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room. Sometimes we don't get our prayer answered the way we wanted it to be answered. But that doesn't dethrone God. All that means is there was an aspect in our asking that we couldn't see, and we will see it when he answers it the way he's always intended it to answer. And at some point, that we've got to recognize there are times and situations in our lives where, where we cannot treat God as our butler who does what we tell him to do. We can't do that. Some people over-preach faith to the extent where you're commanding God. You better be careful with that. I've heard that. You need to command. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I can do a lot of things with God, but you're never going to find me commanding him to do something. A command proceeds from authority, and we don't have any authority over him. And so what we've got to recognize at times is that, friends, he's never out of resources to do you good. The difficulty is, is that sometimes when we don't get the good that we wanted, we get so discouraged or so fearful or so brokenhearted that we quit walking with him and we don't ever get to experience the good that he wanted to give us. I, I can't tell you that I haven't been guilty of that. There's been folks that I've prayed for and just knew God was going to heal them. And ultimately their healing was when they died and went to his presence. I, and, you know, I know we Christians say, well, they did get healed. Well, when I'm praying for healing, that's not the healing I'm praying for. You know, I mean, that's fine. If you want to pray for that, that's fine. But when I'm praying, God, raise this person up in the name of Jesus, I'm not asking him to take them home to heaven. I'm asking him to delay that and let us see the miracle of healing. And I, I remember praying by a good friend's bed over a course of about a month when he was in ICU. And I just knew he was going to get healed, and he didn't. And uh, he exited this earth, and he's in glory today. Hallelujah. I'm happy for him. But the reality was, is, man, that was, a, that was a tough thing to go through. But I'm going to tell you this without going into detail. On the back end of that heartbreak, I got to experience some incredible good from the Lord that I know he wanted to work into my life that never would have come had he given me my immediate request. Esther and Mordecai and all of the Jews had to live for a amount of time under the threat of death, and they couldn't see God doing anything during that time. Didn't look like God was doing anything. 
they had fasted, they had prayed, and it did not, Mordecai, excuse me, Haman just kept growing in power and power and evil and evil. The bad guys were winning, the good guys were losing, God wasn't intervening, and yet they just kept pressing in. And on the backside of their pressing in, God says, now's the time, and he reversed everything. He fought for them, and then ultimately, as we get into the next chapter and the last message next week, you're going to see that the people had to fight. you've got some things that God is going to call you to do that he's not going to do for you. And so it is a measure of our trust of him. When he doesn't make the problem go away, but we're going to have to walk through it with him, can we still feel as good about him when we're walking through it instead of being able to avoid it? Is he still good when he, he calls us to walk with him into the trouble when all we really wanted for him was to remove the trouble from any realm of possibility? I'm going to tell you, you already know the answer. He's still good. And we've got to get to that place where we can call that out, we can testify to that, we can proclaim that, and we can believe it in our heart of hearts. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet tonight. So let's just get very real here. Just want you to get quiet. Two minutes. What is your impossible thing? What's your impossible thing? Take 15 seconds. Frame it up in your mind. If it's a name of a person, just be real. Don't say it out loud. Be real. If it's a burden that just is constantly with you, go ahead and articulate it in your mind. And now I'm going to ask you to pray two things. I'm going to give you this one because this is really what your natural instinct will want to do. Go ahead and ask the Lord to make it go away. Go ahead. I'm not saying that that's wrong to ask it. He may do it. Lord, take this thing from me. Lord, defeat my enemy for me. I don't want to fight anymore. Lord, deliver me from the possibility of another week in this situation. And then I want you to add this prayer. And it's not faithlessness, it's honoring the Lord. His ways may be different than what you're thinking, so you also pray this. But Lord, if you don't remove this, then teach me how to fight in this thing alongside of you. Teach me how to do this with you. Because ultimately, whatever happens, our primary desire is that we're we're growing closer to him, right? Here's here's the tough thing. If it didn't bring you closer to him, would you still want him to make it go away? That's the rub. Because our flesh will always say, yeah, I think I'd rather this thing go away. Now, hold on a second. I'm not speaking to your flesh. I'm speaking to your spirit. If it doesn't result in you drawing closer to him and experiencing greater intimacy with him, do you really want him to remove the problem? I think your spirit and your spirit, man, you're you're saying, no, I don't want that. I want to be closer to him. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, whatever it is that each one of your children is facing in this room, God, we just say whatever brings us closer, if the breakthrough will bring us closer to you than the battle will, then give the breakthrough without the battle. But, Lord, if the battle is what's going to draw us closer to you, 
we say amen and we trust you. Teach us how to fight this alongside of you. In Jesus' name, amen.